So growing up on the plains of Kansas, you have your own sense of tradition that happens out there that might be different from this part of the country, which is sometimes called the Mid-Atlantic or the Northeast, uh, or just simply the Keystone State. Or if you want to get narrow it down, South Central Pennsylvania, or even more, Lancaster County. There is a uniqueness that comes with traditions that happen at Christmas Eve that we tend to treasure. For me, I grew up in the plains of Kansas where going to church on Christmas Eve wasn't a tradition for those of us that were Protestant. You went to family gatherings instead. And so in my family, we went to my great-grandparents who were part of a, of a third-generation uh, home settlers or homesteaders, I should say, for Kansas. In the mid-1800s, Frederick White went and settled this, this square parcel of land that was one square mile, was an original home settler, then was then taken over by Albert White, who then passed it on to Ernest White, who would be then my great-grandfather. And once he retired from the farm, then it was passed on to the next generation, which included my grandfather. But it was when they moved into town that my history starts in because in 1970s, uh, my great-grandfather was already done farming, but the Christmas gatherings that would happen on Christmas Eve would be in the basement of their small ranch home in a, the small town of Phillipsburg, Kansas. When we would show up, we would go down the narrow staircase, down to the bottom, and you would smell the same smells every year. It was a mixture of mothballs and food. Some of you remember that smell of mothballs. For whatever reason, my great-grandmother, because she's a quilter, she wanted to make sure that nothing like that would eat her quilts. And so that smell permeated the whole house. And then when you go downstairs, you'd begin to smell the array of food. Now for her, she chose the same foods every year. So it was a choice of soups, which was a vegetable beef and oyster stew. Now, for an eight-year-old kid, that was not an option, either of them. And, uh, and so you, you just kind of tolerated that portion. And then, then there was cold-cut sandwiches, ham and cheese or bologna uh, that was offered. And then there was pickles in the middle that, that we would always die for because my grandmother made some of those pickles and they were very good. And then there was always good desserts that, that came with it. And, and it was always the same, year in, year out. And after that meal, you would know that, that it was about time for the reading of the Christmas story when my great uncle would fall asleep and begin to snore. <laughs> when his snoring happened, I could almost bet you that that was the point that my great-grandmother would go looking for the Bible to have it read by my grandfather. So when the snoring happened, we're all realizing it's time. We got to keep our uncle with the story. So we would get to that place at the table and, and my great-grandfather would read Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. And after that, there would be a prayer. And then this moment that was very unique in our household is that my grandmother would wrap gifts in newspaper. And she would cut up a calendar and, write, and, and take all the different numbers of the days and place a number on that wrapped gift that would be newspaper. So there was, you know, obviously 31 or more uh, gifts. And then she would cut up another counter and put all those numbers in a little bowl. And then one of us grandchildren would walk around, handing the bowl around to make sure that everybody got a number. 
Then it was the grandchildren's job to then go under the tree and grab all the newspaper-related gifts that had a number, and we would start yelling out numbers. 24, 13, 9, and people are putting their arms up, and then us kids would go and deliver the gift. Then you would get, once everybody was handed out those gifts, then we would open all at once. And then, you know, every year was always interesting to see what you would get. So in this particular year, I opened it up and I got a pair of tea towels. <laughs> Real exciting for an eight-year-old. But then after that, then there would be the opportunity for gifts to be opened that had your name on it. My grandmother then would wrap with traditional uh, Christmas gift wrapping and wrap a gift for everybody who came. And so we'd all get our gift from great grandma. And then we would open that gift and uh, kind of again, once they were all passed out, we'd all open kind of at the same time. And then the next step was that grandma would then hand out little bank envelopes with cash in it. Now for an eight-year-old kid, this was really cool. Because now you're getting cash, which normally I did not get. And so to open that up when I was younger, it was $10. Some point later, I might have been around when I turned 13, I got $20. So, but I have no idea what older people got, but that was my allotment. And, and so I look forward to getting those envelopes. But this one particular year, and this was not uncommon throughout the years, but in this particular year, there was a person at the table that was not part of the family. I cannot recall which family member brought them, but it was a stranger who was passing through town and didn't have anywhere to spend on Christmas Eve. So whichever family member, again, do not recall, invited them to our Christmas Eve gathering. And apparently they must have told my grandmother that, that this individual was coming because there was a gift for them that was newspaper wrapped. There were plenty to go around. There was a gift with their name on it that they also received. And there was a bank envelope that they also received with their name on it. Now, I happened to be near this individual when we were opening our bank envelopes. And I was already surprised. It's like, this was a stranger to me. Who are they? They're not a cousin. They're not an aunt or uncle. They're not a grandparent. Who are they? They didn't even marry into the family. They're, they're just this stranger. And nobody was really telling the story because usually when somebody's traveling alone, there's more to the story that often isn't shared. But what really caught my attention after seeing that they were included as if they had been there from the beginning of time with that family was when they opened up their bank envelope, that individual got a $50 bill. Now, I'm a great-grandchild. There's blood that's flowing through me that is related to my great-grandparents. And I got less than a stranger. And I remember thinking, we don't even know who this person is or what they might have done in another state. <laughs> but they just got five times the amount that I did. And I'm guessing that, that that is probably around the amount of money that people that age in the family got from my grand grandmother. But she treated this individual as if they had always been at the table. There was no such thing as a stranger. If one of us, as we got older, was dating somebody and we wanted to bring our date to the thing, they got a gift, they got money, they got everything else that any of the rest of us get. There was no stranger at the table. That's the beauty when love is 
just extravagant. It has no boundaries. It's not known by whether you've been with the family for a long time or you've been with the family short time. There's just something unique when somebody can be new to the table and they're treated as if they had always been there. We're going to discover today that God has a table that is open to guests and there are no strangers sitting at it. You will find that at the table that whatever is offered to the one that's been there the longest and to the one who has been there the least, it is the same gift, the same love, the same extravagance, the same acceptance. So to go there and to kind of explain the heart of God that I believe was exemplified in my grandmother is found in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to turn in our Bibles there. And if you do not have a Bible, our ushers are walking down right now with Bibles and they'd be glad to offer you one. Just simply put your hand up and they'll hand it to you. If you do not own a Bible, let this be your first Christmas gift of the season and take it home with you. So like my great-grandmother, where there were no strangers at the table, so it is with God. I mean, for some of us, we've been maybe walking a journey where we would say we have been Christian since we were young. And we've known the storyline of Jesus Christ since we were young. Others of you walked in this door, and you may not have even known the story of Jesus when you walked in. This might all be new to you. But you know what? Whether you've known about and known Jesus personally and he is your Lord and Savior and maybe has been that for 50 plus years or whether you came into this room and today you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you come to the table, you'll find the same food, the same gifts, and the same love. You see, there is a uniqueness to the love of God that even goes beyond anything my grandmother could show us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, there's a fantastic passage that shows the heart of God for you and I. So let's begin by reading in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave up for, but did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who can condemn? No one, because Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Let me pause there, and I'll continue reading here in a moment. So we have a declaration about this mystery of how God approaches you and I. First of all, it begins that the love of God was on display because he decided that he was for us, and not against us. There's a significant difference when somebody is for you versus being against you. When I was looking at this in, in, in depth, it's basically saying there is, God is all in. This is, this is like, there's nothing held back. God is all in for you. So when I kind of think through what does that look like 
in our normal everyday lives. And, and where I can say, I can see this operating in our daily life is when you go to a sporting event, you can tell whose kid's parent is in the stands. Because if they do something really well, they're the loud, the parent is the loudest cheer person in the stands. If the person, if their child does something poor on the playing field or on the court, you'll hear that it's okay, son, it's okay, or it's okay, honey. You know, and, and you hear this. And meanwhile, the athlete on the field, depending on their age, may be like, Mom, Dad, quiet. But the parent in the stand is for their kid. Their kid could have the worst game possible and that parent is fully committed to their son or daughter and is playing in that game. They are all in. Does not matter their talent or their skill or how well they're doing in that game. They are all in and that is what God is like. He is for you. He is all in. It does not matter how you behave or how well you're doing or how skilled you are. God is for you. He is like that captain of a team where he gets to pick his team. Remember in elementary school when kickball would happen on the playground? And there would be two captains chosen, usually the two alpha males. And, and then they would get to choose their team. And if you're not one of the first three or four picked, you're starting to feel a little insecure. Sorry about that. So you have this opportunity where you're like, you're going to have to suck it up. It's like you're not going to be the first picked, and that's okay. So then you go in, and you start going, you're, you're waiting, your name gets called, and you realize it got called by the one that you think is actually the best player. That captain chose you. And you feel like, we're going to win this because this is the best person. But then you realize that captain, regardless of how well you do, a really good one will say, it's all right when you make a mistake. We got you. We got you. I got your back. That's like God. There is nobody with more power. There is nobody with more influence. There's nobody that knows the future or the past or present in full like God. Yet God is for you and he takes advantage of all of his knowledge and all of his power and the way he intercedes with you. So in this situation, it's like getting chosen by the greatest of all time and, and being able to say, I know I am on the winning team because God is for me. So anybody else wouldn't stand a chance. But in this text, as you're reading it, in verse 32, it says something else. Is that not only is God for you, in order to include you within his family, in order for him to include you at his table, he paid the price. If you will, he paid the entry fee. Or he paid that which was owed according to the courts. And so therefore, he paid what was necessary to make it possible for you to sit at his table you see those who sit at God's table he looks at them as if they had done nothing wrong now, that's strange because I know the list of the things I've done wrong and some of you work with me close enough and know I'm not perfect my parents are in the room and they will tell testimony of I'm me not being perfect but here's the thing with God he looks at me as completely clean. And he's done this by paying the price. Now what was the price? It says in verse 32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave, up for, gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with that son, graciously give us all things? So what kind of price does it take to show love? For God to include us at his table meant that we had to come to the table perfect. We had to come to the table without sin. Which then means that none of us could get there on our own. But God paid the price. And he did not withhold anything to do so. In fact, the price he paid was by taking his one and only son and saying, Here, go and be a part of them. Live as what we want them to live so that they can see our heart. And then I want you to die even though you don't deserve to die. And then you'll raise again so that they can have life and sit at our table. God did not withhold anything. Imagine, imagine that you were going to show love to the stranger that came to my great-grandmother's house. She did not have to give up any of her children to include that stranger at the table. But for God, he was going to have to say to his son, go and die for them so that they can come to our table. If God asked you to show love to a complete stranger, and he said what you're going to have to do is to give up one of your children, would you do it? My guess is you would not. Now, if there were any parents in here shaking their head and you're one of their children, you need to have a talk this afternoon. Because <laughs> they basically said, yeah, I'll give you up. Give me a new one. Give me a stranger to put on my table. Great. I'll get rid of this kid. But for God, he had one son. The son that he had a very personal, intimate relationship with. That he loved dearly beyond anything else. And he said, I love those I've created enough where I'm willing to give that which is most precious to me so that you can be at my table. So God is not only for you, where he is always there cheering you on, he is wanting you to succeed, and he's willing to do whatever it takes, he'll pay the price. But it doesn't just end there if you give your life to Jesus Christ, his son, and by faith accept that free gift. It doesn't just end there. And you get invited to the table. No, just like a good parent, he now becomes invested into your future. It says, again, looking at verses 33 and 34 again, it says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is God who justifies? Who then is the one that can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for you and I. So basically this. No longer can you be accused successfully. See, if you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and by faith accept his free gift that he has accomplished on the cross, you then now have the opportunity to be at the table of God. And if the accuser comes and says, that person, let's say it's me for a moment, that Tony Hunt, he is a sinner. Prior to Jesus, God would have said, you're right. You're right, he is. But if I'm sitting at the table and I'm part of his family, God would say, he was. 
but now I see him as completely clean. I still have flaws. I still sin, but God sees me as someone he has cleaned fully and, and, and completely through his work, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So as a result, God sees me as clean. And so if the accuser comes and says, he has fallen, he's imperfect, he was, but I don't see, them, see him as that anymore. So the accuser's accusations do not stand any longer. And then it says that God then becomes our defender. So if there's an accusation that seems to stick to the wall, according to the mind of Satan himself, God would say, <laughs> I'm the defender. I'm the one that established the law. I'm the one that said that which is moral and that which is not. And I'm the one that also paid the price for what that sin did to them. So as a result, we have this defender and then on a daily basis, it says, the one who paid the price, Jesus himself, becomes our daily intercessor. In other words, he is praying, he is talking to God, because it says Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. So he literally is bending the right ear of God every day on your behalf for the needs that you have. Do you understand what this means? This means that when you came to the table... You were like that stranger who did not deserve the $50 bill, but deserved probably just the food and the food only, just out of mere kindness. But no, God doesn't operate that way. He goes further. He says, it doesn't matter whether you've been with me for 50 years or you've been with me for five minutes. The full blessings of my table are yours. And not only that, you are not only my child now as a son or daughter, but I am now working on your behalf every day to defeat the accuser, to defend you, and to intercede on your behalf so that every day you're growing more closer to my heart. That's the extravagant love that God has. Let's continue reading in verse 35. So as a result of this, if God is for you, which he is, and if God has paid a great price, which he has, and he is now working on a daily basis because he's investing you, which he is always doing, then the question is this. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For your sake, we face death all day long. And we're considered like sheep that's going to be slaughtered. But no, not in your case. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither present or future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. That kind of love is what is on display from God himself. That he would do something so radical to give up his son so that you can sit at his table. And as a result, what it says in verse 35 is nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. 
If God, who is the creator of the universe, who established that which is good and that which is evil, and the one who said that sin must be punished, and if he said that the way that you can cover and pay the price for that sin is a perfect lamb that can, that can cover the sin once and for all, and he says that perfect lamb is my son, if he's the one that declares that, then there is nothing left that can separate you from that love. It is complete. It is not hindered. So as a result, he goes and says in verse 35, there is no situation, there is no situation here on this earth that you did not create, that comes your way, that can separate you from the love of God. If cancer was to come into your life or somebody near and dear to you becomes sick and, and, and it's causing hardship or if a situation happens at work or a situation happens in culture that has nothing to do with your making but it makes your life difficult, guess what? God's love cannot be separated from you by whatever it is that might be happening. You know what? He even goes further and says, there is not an adversary here on this earth who is malicious in their intent towards you, who can separate you from my love. And furthermore, he says, and even if you fall on hard times, and sometimes those hard times are made by poor decisions on your part, does not matter. It will not separate you from the love of God. So whether it's caused by you or caused by another, whether it's just a situation that you're in that's very difficult or it's something that just simply brings mystery, does not matter. God's love cannot be withheld from you. And then it says, very importantly, and because of the love of Christ, death does not win. Is there anything in life that can create more fear than the fear of death? Think about it. We spend millions of dollars to avoid and cheat death. We do all kinds of things. I take supplements every morning. I want to be healthy. I want to live long. But you know what? I do not fear death. You see, for those who have been invited to the table of God, that have experienced what Jesus provides through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, we now know that when we die... We go and we sit at the table of God. The table that my grandmother had us grandchildren sitting at was a patio table with plastic covering. There was nothing special about that table. But it was the one who had provided for that table that made it special. But imagine the master craftsman of all time, the greatest carpenter here on this earth, Jesus Christ, built the table that you and I get to sit at when we die. Imagine what the food will be like, especially when you know the one who has prepared it. Can you imagine what it is like when you know that the promise is that for those who have accepted that Jesus is the one who has paid for my sin and therefore has forever covered it and therefore I have confidence to know that when I die, I will be accepted into the eternal kingdom of God because I've had faith in the work of Jesus Christ. I then do not fear death, whether it's today or tomorrow. And if I, while I'm alive, I also don't have to fear that which I cannot see. He says, there are no spiritual authorities, angels or demons, that can separate you from the love of Christ. They can't do anything because your father is the God of the universe. Amen. 
They cannot do anything without his permission. They can't do anything to harm you, but all they can do at worst is what Jesus even said, is harm the body. But your soul, they cannot touch. And as a result, it says in this text, we do not need to worry about tomorrow. Anything here on this earth, we do not need to worry about. In fact, he says this, that if there's anything you're trying to conceive, well, perhaps this could separate me from the love of God. The final, like, clincher statement in all this is that there is nothing on the surface of the earth that can separate you from the love of God, which means there's nothing. If in the unseen they can't do it, if in the seen they cannot do it, if death, which we cannot control, cannot do it, then nothing can separate us from the love of God because he is for you and he has paid a big price for you and he is interceding for you even right now. So please hear me when it says in verse 39 that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. His table is a big table. It does not require a qualification to come to it. It does not require merits to determine who belongs at this table. That's the crazy thing of this is that it's everyone and all people, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of money, regardless of standing, regardless of background, regardless of things you've done or said in the past. He says, I have sent my son for those who will have faith in me to know that my sin is covered by Jesus Christ and him alone. And as a result, God's type of love, which said he was willing to hold nothing back, to use his son to pay for it. If that's the type of love he had, would you not want to receive that love for yourself? Some of you have been at the table of the Lord for a long time. Others of you, you walked in not knowing Jesus and you're a stranger. Would you receive his love today and accept Jesus Christ as your true Lord, the leader of your life, and the Savior of your soul, acknowledging that I cannot come to the table of God because I'm a sinner. I cannot pay my way to go to that table. I can't do something to get to that table. I have to trust in the work that God provided through his son Jesus to do it. Would you be willing by faith to receive that free gift of love that's manifested in Jesus? And if Jesus is your Lord and you make him your Lord today or he's been your Lord, why do you walk in fear? We have nothing to be afraid of. The love of God cannot be separated from you. Nothing. It's the ultimate statement. There is nothing you can see or cannot see that can separate you from the love of God. So therefore, we have no fear that we should let dictate our lives. And all the more, if we've been the recipients of it, which my great-grandmother was, she loved Jesus dearly, then why would we not pay that love forward? and allow strangers to sit at our table being treated as if they've been family all along. You see, that's the opportunity, is if God was willing to do it, so should we. It's an opportunity to be a blessing during such a season where there are no strangers that come into our house. Let's pray.
God, <laughs> your love, which quite frankly blows my mind, that the most precious thing that you had in your heart was your son Jesus, and you didn't even withhold him for the sake of those of us here in this room coming into faith. You paid the price. So Lord, I just say thank you for this incredible love. You are worthy of praise. You are worthy of honor. And we just merely are blessed to sit at that table. So speak to our hearts this morning. And if there are those here in this room that have not been at your table, would you by your Holy Spirit invite them to know that this is a place that they are going to be loved like they've never been loved before. And they would receive a love that is so graciously given and will forever change their lives. So God, do your work as only you can do as we celebrate the revelation of how you were going to redeem mankind. That revelation manifested in a baby born 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Amen. So as I shared, the opportunity to be at the Lord's table is right there for anybody here who walked in this room not knowing Jesus Christ personally. It, he wants you to sit at that table. The price has been paid for. It's merely by faith that you accept it. You see, we all are flawed. And all of us have done what is required to basically not be invited to the table. But now there is an invitation because it's been paid for. The tickets are free. You just merely have to receive. We'll have some people underneath the tomb to my left, your right, they'll be glad to pray with you to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Maybe you came with somebody here this morning that knows Jesus and you know they do. You can talk to them as well. We want you to walk away knowing that the love that we've been experiencing at the table of God, you can experience at the same level today, whether or not this is new or you've been knowing Jesus for 50 years. It's a free gift. The nice thing is, is that there are also opportunities for continuing the celebration of what we acknowledge that the Christ child came. And that's the Christmas Eve services. And there are tickets for that. And they are free, just like the ticket to heaven is, is free. <laughs> but here's the thing. We do that because we need to make sure that we have space for all who come. So the tickets aren't something we collect at the door. It's basically, it makes us aware of your intent so that we know that we have enough space for everybody who comes. We have space in 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock, and it's a little less space available in 4.30. So uh, that will be coming this coming Tuesday night. It is a special service, and it is now part of my tradition. I will show up. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So anyway, we want to invite you to do that. Those tickets are available at the connection counter out those doors. So I trust that the message of today that God loves you and that love is extravagant and he is for you and nothing can separate you from that love has caught your heart. And as a result, you can walk out of here with joy upon your lips. So may that happen and may you have a Merry Christmas this week and safe travels. You are dismissed. Amen. <laughs>